Well, we are continuing in uh, the study we've been doing for quite some time now. We are still in the, uh, the German Reformation and uh, have some important things yet to cover there. Though I was looking at my notes here, and uh, my, my notes reflect sort of how uh, we deal with, with Martin Luther. Uh, pretty much after 1530, the last 16 years of his life, he dies in 1546, just sort of are passed over. Uh, and it, it, it has been well said that uh, Luther's uh, primary uh, contributions were, were done uh, prior to 1530. And um, we'll discuss a little bit more of that as we, as we go along. We were... When we, when we last visited with Brother Luther, he was in the Wartburg Castle uh, after the Diet of Worms. Uh, the Diet of Worms has given its condemnation of him. He is now an outlaw, but he's being protected uh, by uh, Elector Frederick and is hiding out at the Wartburg Castle. He is translating uh, the uh, New Testament uh, into German. Uh, we discussed a little bit about how much of a challenge that would be, um, how he uh, was dealing with a language that had numerous dialects and uh, was not, uh, you know, we think of languages as fairly standardized things to this, in this, this day and age, but they were not at that particular point in time. And then we mentioned uh, what was going on back in Wittenberg, Andreas Karlstadt, uh, had taken over, and uh, there was uh, iconoclasm going on, the destruction of images, and and uh, Frederick didn't like what he was hearing uh, coming out of uh, Wittenberg, and so Luther made a, a flying trip home, uh, December 3rd and 4th, um, and uh, at that time, things were fairly calm, so he didn't really see that there was uh, too much to be concerned about. But then, as I mentioned, Karlstadt announced that he was going to give uh, the bread and the wine uh, to the people in mass uh, for New Year's. And Frederick said, oh, no, you're not. So uh, Karlstadt said, yes, sir. So he did it on Christmas Eve instead. And um, uh, I, I mentioned briefly... Uh, the fact that I included that particular incident in um, the opportunity I had to preach in the castle church because that's where it took place. So it was rather interesting to stand in the, the high pulpit uh, there over on the side, of course. Uh, you wouldn't put anything in the center um, at, that, at that time period. Uh, but you're very much elevated. I mean, you can everybody can hear you. Uh, rather easily from uh, from up there, and you can see everybody as well. And I, I could not help but uh, imagine a number of times uh, what it looked like that day um, when Karlstadt uh, made the wine available. Uh, there were the place was completely packed out, and there were just so many people uh, that wanted to. Uh, partake of the elements, all of them. The, the wine had been, the cup had been withdrawn from the laity hundreds of years before. And uh, the priest had communed in their place, representatively. Um, and there were obviously many people that were excited about this new development. There were other people uh, who were very uh, disturbed by it because it was not done 
evidently in a super orderly fashion. Um, as you can imagine, people pushing and shoving to get to the front, and, and uh, it was um, uh, quite, the, quite the experience. But at the same time, um, two days later, the uh, day after Christmas, the Zwickau prophets came to Wittenberg. The Zwickau prophets. Now, these were interesting individuals who basically uh, presented the idea um, that they were the recipients of divine revelation uh, of the same nature and character as Scripture itself. And they taught a very individualistic uh, spiritualism, um, the, the soul's direct communion with God and communication with God over against the old ways of man and the strictures of church and religion and things like that. And interestingly enough, when they are first mentioned to Luther via letter, uh, his response is, well, um, need to, need to hear them out and see what it is they're saying. And, um, uh, find out what you know they're really uh, talking about. We don't want to want to be quick in judging them. I mean, he's hiding from the authorities himself, um, not really in a position to be able to very uh, strongly uh, condemn uh, someone else at this point in time. Anyways, um, so we're, we're talking fifteen twenty one here. We're only talking uh, less than uh, well, just a little over four years since the posting of the 95 Theses. This is, this is a relatively early period. And assuredly, uh, what one must do if one's going to be fair with Luther in history is to keep in mind this Luther uh, versus the Luther of the 1540s, um, who is not going to be anywhere near as uh, generous uh, in... Uh, withholding judgment on someone like the Zwickau prophets. Um, they even had influence upon Karlstadt, especially upon Karlstadt. Uh, and even Philip Melanchthon uh, was like, well, these, these guys, they seem to live quite a holy life. And, uh, you know, maybe there's something to what they are, what they're saying. Well, Luther returns to Wittenberg. He, he writes to he writes to the elector and he uh, uh, says, look, um, I, I really appreciate your protecting me. I know you can't protect me if I go to Wittenberg. Um, I don't expect you to. I expect to die, but I cannot stay in hiding here any longer. Uh, Wittenberg needs me. Uh, the Reformation needs me. And so I'm going to return, even though... Uh, the Duke, through his, uh, the elector, through his representatives, uh, strongly attempted to discourage Luther from doing this. He returns in, uh, in March of 1522, and very immediately, uh, he is uh, very negatively impacted by the effect and the presence of the Zwickau prophets, and very quickly has them, uh, has them driven out of town. Um, and 
what we need to understand, and this is just part of human nature and it's part of dealing with history and you've simply got to uh, factor this in when dealing with anybody, but uh, Luther was never really either able or willing. Sometimes able and willing are terms that are way too close to one another, especially historically. Uh, able or willing to distinguish between the Zwickau prophets and all Anabaptists, whoever they were and whatever their views were. This was a problem amongst pretty much all the Reformed, even when we use the term Reformed, it's more uh, strict sense of maybe Zwingli, Calvin, the Genevan uh, tradition that then becomes the primary tradition in the United Kingdom and hence primary in defining the very term Reformed for us even today. Um, there, was, um, there was not a lot of meaningful interaction. I mean, as we're going to see, Zwingli has the most interaction with the early Anabaptists because many of them were his students. Um, but once the break takes place, um, the, re the, the reaction to them and the utilization of governmental force against Anabaptists by non followers of the papacy. The term Protestant won't be developed for a few more years, uh, but by Protestants. Uh, takes place astonishingly quickly. But it shouldn't astonish us because of the fact that um, you know, the big term, the, the big word that, that I hope you, you keep in mind uh, as we consider uh, these things that one's probably already dead, but is a term we have used before, but let's remind ourselves of it. Sacralism. Sacralism, the state church. And uh, Luther, for a brief period of time, somewhere between 1521 and 1524, maybe, maybe for a few years, right at this time period where we are right now, uh, made some comments where he recognized that if you really wanted to have a, a pure and holy church, uh, it would have to be a free church. It would have to be a church that people associate with freely, that they're not just simply baptized into it. Um, he recognized that uh, without that, you would always have um, a mixed church um, of, of people in whose lives the, the Spirit is truly active and in others whose lives the Spirit is not uh, in, in regeneration. And so you had for a while um, the, the, the possibility of a critical examination of sacralism, even though, remember, at this point in time, um, the state church has existed for uh, over a thousand years. For over a thousand years. Uh, it's all that anyone remembers. It's all that anyone knows. Uh, certainly, intellectually, they knew that in the early church, you know, the early church was persecuted and things like that. And, but from their perspective, um, 
Christendom had defeated the pagan Romans and had taken over, and that's how it was supposed to be. And, and so you had this concept of sacralism. And the Anabaptists, as a, as a rule, well, you can't, you can't say anything about Anabaptists as a rule. That's the problem. Um, many of the Anabaptists... Uh, were not sacralistic. They believed in a free church, and they believed that it needed to be a free church, that you needed to make a decision to be a part, to be a follower of Christ and to be a part of the church. And it wasn't just that. That was part of the whole issue of baptism itself, was what is true believer's baptism. It sort of, sort of came together. Now, there were some who ended up being called Anabaptists, who weren't overly consistent on that point, but we'll get to them at a, at a later point in time. Anyway, um, so Zwingli, I'm sorry, so, so Luther um, sees the Zwickau prophets as a grave danger um, ecclesiastically and theologically at first, and then, within a few years, sees them as a grave danger to social order itself. And there is no question that for Luther, he is eventually going to make the decision that anarchy um, is the worst possible sin, and it must be resisted at at all costs. And that is going to impact uh, the reason why I say that we have Luther I and Luther II. We have the Luther prior to 1525 and the Luther after 1525. And um, that is uh, rather uh, an important issue that we'll, we'll get to here in just, in just a moment. Let's talk a little bit uh, about his uh, personal life at this time. Um, once he returns to Wittenberg, he... Shaves his beard off. He returns to the tonsure cut of the monk. He puts on his monastic robes. Uh, Karl Stott had done away with clerical clothing. Uh, Luther comes back and he, he preaches a series of sermons. I think it was eight sermons, if I recall correctly. Basically saying, the Reformation is here. We are going to continue it, but we are going to do it in an orderly and decent manner. And all of you hotheads need to be patient with the Lord's work. We're working through these issues. But again, the idea of anarchy and rebellion... Uh, these are all things that Luther says we simply cannot allow uh, this to mark our movement or it will be the end of our movement. We must do this in a decent and order, orderly fashion. And so um, he takes up his uh, preaching ministry once again. But one of the things that he had already agreed to was to look at this issue of lawful oaths while he was at the Wartburg. He had come to the conclusion that the oath he had taken of celibacy was an invalid oath before God, and therefore uh, priests could marry, which, of course, has always been 
the tradition in Lutheranism since that, uh, since that day, the married ministry, um, ended up having a huge impact uh, on German culture as a whole, in fact. Um, and as a result, the monasteries are being closed, and uh, Karlstadt marries uh, pretty quickly, but Luther... Luther, not so much, is interested in that. Um, but in uh, f- about 1522-ish, um, well, he had written a book called On Monastic Vows, and a group of nuns uh, read the book while still in the nunnery and escaped from the nunnery on Easter Sunday, hiding themselves in salt pork barrels, which must have smelled wonderful and been tremendously comfortable. Uh, But uh, the people who came for the barrels thought they were picking up salted pork, uh, and instead they were picking up uh, uh, five nuns um, and uh, escaped. I think it was five, may have been more than that, but it's the number that pops into my head escaped from the nunnery, came to Wittenberg, and uh, Luther then becomes a, a matchmaker. They approach Luther, they tell them their, their story, and Luther's like, okay, uh, let me see what I can do for you. And uh, over the next number of months, manages uh, to marry them all off, except for one by the name of Catherine von Bora. Catherine von Bora. And it seems like Catherine had already made up her mind that um, uh, she wasn't going to marry anyone but, uh, but Luther. And so, um, you know, she's, she's the last one not to be married, and Luther's like, I don't know what to do. And she's like, I think you do. Uh, <laughs> and um, he's like, well, hmm, okay. And as he said uh, in his writings later on, he married for three reasons. Three reasons. The gentlemen who are not married yet, I would not suggest necessarily that you contextualize these reasons in your own life. But uh, one, to please my father. Number two, to rile the Pope. And number three, to make angels laugh and devils cry. Uh, Those were his three reasons that he gave later on for his marriage to, to his beloved Katie. Um, but uh, while it may have been somewhat of a, well, okay, I can't find anybody else for you, let's get married uh, type situation in 1525, uh, by 1530, uh, Luther is very much head over heels in love with his dear Katie, uh, even he described the book of uh, Galatians as uh, his, his dear Catherine of all the books of Scripture. So you sort of get the idea, uh, that type of thing. She was a great help to Luther. She was a great administrator. Uh, she ran the home quite well. Uh, she was witness to much of, the, of what's called the table talk, the discussions that Luther would have with, with his students and others there at the home that had been given to him uh, uh, by the elector. And uh, uh, I think I already told you the story about uh, you know, Luther's many depressions. He, 
He would probably be described as bipolar today or something like that, but uh, there were great dark times in his life, and during one of those times, he was um, sitting by himself in the darkness of the basement of the home, and and the door opens, and, and Catherine comes in, and she's all dressed in black, and she sits down next to him, and she's weeping, and he's like, what? What is wrong with you, woman? And she says, well, haven't you heard? What? God has died. God has died. Woman, what are you talking about? That's impossible. And she's like, well, what else could make you behave in this fashion? And, uh, you know, sort of like, oh, quit ruining my sour mood, you know, uh, that type <laughs> of a thing. And, and uh, uh, so she was, uh, she was a, a, a tremendous uh, help uh, to Luther. They had five children together um, that, uh, I think five that lived, I think there were some, some uh, infantile deaths um, in, in that situation uh, that were very difficult on, on Luther, but that was the common experience of that day. In many places, you had to have 10 live births to get one child through to maturity, uh, especially during periods of plague. Uh, that, was, uh, that was the case, and so it was a very, very very difficult uh, a time. And so uh, Luther finally marries. Uh, this, this is going to become one of the major, you know, obviously uh, what Rome then starts saying is, ah, the whole reason these people are doing what they're doing is because they, they couldn't be celibate and they just want to engage in sex and that's it's all, it's, all, it's all about and so on and so forth. But the reality is the, the restoration of the New Testament model of the elder in the church and the, um, the, the role of the pastor that had been so completely taken over by this foreign concept of a priesthood and a celibate priesthood and all the uh, non-Christian accretions that had been added to it, um, uh, major, major strength uh, for the Reformation and uh, all the other traditions uh, would would take a would take this to heart as well uh, in their uh, in their own ways as they left uh, the Roman communion and so uh, what uh, what what happens that changes everything in in Luther's perspective or that solidifies I guess Luther's perspective and that marks the dividing line between uh, the early Luther and the later Luther, Luther I and Luther II, is uh, portrayed for you uh, somewhat in uh, the movie The Radicals. It's not really... It is, well, it is portrayed in the, um, uh, in the 2004 Luther movie. It doesn't really... It, it, uh, the uh, BBC Luther movie ends before this. So it is brought in briefly... Uh, in in the Luther movie toward the end, where they sort of conflate a bunch of stuff together. But what you have in 1525 is the Peasants' Revolt. And from Luther's return to Wittenberg in 1522 uh, up to 1525, the, the peasants are looking to Luther as a great leader, as an ally, as a friend. They're obviously uh, heavily taxed and mistreated and uh, sort of still in serfdom in many situations. And Luther addresses the nobles 
and he he strongly encourages them to a a Christian ethic of how to treat their subjects and and uh, so the the peasants view Luther as as their leader. Um, but starting in 1525, scattered acts of rebellion become a, a full-scale rebellion with bloodshed. And large groups of peasants storm certain uh, castles, uh, and uh, resulting in the death not only of soldiers, but also of, of princes and nobles. And at some point in 1525, uh, Luther has to make a decision, and he does, and he comes down the side of law and order and against anarchy, and in a poorly phrased um, tractate, uh, encourages the German nobility and government if there wasn't a German government, but you know what I mean, the, uh, the powers that be, um, to crush the rebellion, uh, which they did to the tune of about 100,000 uh, peasants who certainly were not prepared either in armament, leadership, or training uh, to take on professional soldiers, uh, cavalry, and so on and so forth. And so the rebellion is put down, but uh, Luther loses southern Germany, basically. Um, And there's a fairly clear line of demarcation. You can sort of follow it by just looking at what the churches were maybe 100 years later. And what happens in Luther's thinking is a solidification of this concept of sacralism. There's no more rumination about a free church or um, anything like that at all. Now you have the necessary survival of Christendom. And of course, at the same time, the the Muslims are invading from the East. And um, in Luther's eschatology, the Pope is the spiritual antichrist, but the Muslim is the physical Antichrist. So there's a spiritual Antichrist, that's, that's the papacy. Uh, but the physical Antichrist that is being used to punish sinful Europe uh, are the Muslims. And so there has to be a unified Christendom um, in the defense against the Muslims. And so uh, you begin to see in later years, a few, you know, a few years after this, joint Lutheran-Catholic military maneuvers, you might say. For example, when uh, the Anabaptists uh, take over a city, we'll look at this later on, it was a joint Catholic-Lutheran army that broke through the city walls and eventually uh, put down this this insanity from uh, their perspective. And it was a joint group that did this. And so... The, the Peasants' Revolt of 1525 is, in, in my mind, the dividing line in looking at Luther. Uh, prior to that, you have uh, a Luther who is focused upon... You, prior to that, you have the Luther we like the most. 
And after that, you have the Luther we don't like as much. Um, and this can be seen, I think, especially in Luther's view of the Jews. Now, uh, you probably heard last year uh, with the 500th anniversary um, a fair amount of discussion of Luther's anti-Jewish polemic and uh, that Luther led to the Nazis and all the rest of that stuff. Luther didn't lead to the Nazis. Uh, the Nazis used Luther in quotes, uh, but then again, they quoted from the Gospel of John a lot, too. You can't quite hold John accountable for the twisting and uh, horrific misuse of his own words 2,000 years after he wrote them. Well, 1,900 years after he wrote them. Anyway, um, so in 1523... So prior to the Peasants' Revolt, Luther wrote a book called Jesus Was Born a Jew. Now you need to understand that there was uh, a tremendous amount of anti-Judaism in Europe uh, long before Luther was born. The, remember when we talked about the Crusades? Um, the uh, one crusade that basically hung a left, went over and sacked Constantinople, along the way did pogroms against Jews. Um, and so when the Crusaders would come through, any Jews in the area would flee. And remember, I, I told you what happened during the, the plague. One Swiss city had taken all the Jews in their city and put them out on an island and locked them in a, in a house on an island and burned the place down. Uh, they burned, you know, so, so there was a tremendous amount of anti-Judaism under Roman Catholicism. The popes had encouraged it. Inquisition encouraged it. Um, that, was, that was the norm at this period of time. So in 1523, when Luther writes this book, it's rather radical. Um, here's what he says. Therefore, I will cite from Scripture the reasons that move me to believe that Christ was a Jew born of a virgin that I might perhaps also win some Jews to the Christian faith. Our fools, the popes, bishops, sophists, and monks, the crude asses' heads, have hitherto so treated the Jews that anyone who wished to be a good Christian would almost have to, had to become a Jew. If I had been a Jew and had seen such dolts and blockheads govern and teach the Christian faith, I would sooner have become a hog than a Christian. <laughs> They have dealt with the Jews as if they were dogs rather than human beings. They have done little else than deride them and seize their property. When they baptize them, they show them nothing of Christian doctrine or life, but only subject them to popishness and monkery. When the Jews then see that Judaism has such strong support in Scripture and that Christianity has become a mere babble without reliance on Scripture, how can they possibly com compose themselves and become right good Christians? I have myself heard from pious baptized Jews that if they had not in our day heard the gospel, they would have remained Jews under the cloak of Christianity for the rest of their days. For they acknowledge that they have never yet heard anything about Christ from those who baptized and taught them. I hope that if one deals in a kindly way with the Jews and instructs them carefully from Holy Scripture, many of them will become genuine Christians and turn again to the faith of their fathers, the prophets and patriarchs. They will only be frightened further away from it if their Judaism is so utterly rejected that nothing is allowed to remain and they are treated only with arrogance and scorn. If the apostles, who also were Jews, had dealt with us Gentiles as we Gentiles deal with the Jews, 
there would never have been a Christian among the Gentiles. Since they dealt with us Gentiles in such brotherly fashion, we in our turn ought to treat the Jews in a brotherly manner in order that we might convert some of them. For even we ourselves are not yet all very far along, not to speak of having arrived. So this is 1523, and this is a rather what we would call liberal or uh, friendly uh, perspective, very unusual in this time. Uh, Luther is, is open to you know, evangelistic ministry amongst the Jews, and, and you, you, know, you, hear the, you hear the words. That's prior to 1525. Luther dies in 1546 in Eisleben, and Eisleben is where he was born. He almost never lived there. He just happened to be in Eisleben when he had a series of heart attacks. He had gone there to... Um, he had gone there to uh, mediate a dispute. And... Uh, that's when he had the heart attacks and he was never strong enough to leave and... So he died there in, uh, in Eisleben. He's preached the last four sermons that he preached. He preached there in the cathedral church in, in Eisleben. And um, the pulpit from which he preached is still there. You can't go up into it. It's too uh, old and rickety, uh, but it's, it's still there. And uh, the, second, the, 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 the second and third of those sermons in particular had a, a fair amount of very strong language about the Jews. Why? Well, in 20 years after Jesus was born, a Jew came out. Luther published a book called The Jews and Their Lies. The Jews and Their Lies. Uh, let me read about the same amount of material from The Jews and Their Lies for you. What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? Since they live among us, we dare not tolerate their conduct. Now that we are aware of their lying and reviling and blaspheming, if we do, we become sharers in their lies, cursing and blasphemy. Thus, we cannot extinguish the unquenchable fire of divine wrath of which the prophets speak, nor can we convert the Jews. With prayer and the fear of God, we must practice a sharp mercy to see whether we might save at least a few from the glowing flames. We dare not avenge ourselves. Vengeance, a thousand times worse than we could wish them already, has them by the throat. I shall give you my sincere advice. First, to set fire to their synagogues or schools and to bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom. Please notice the term Christendom. So that God might see that we are Christians and do not condone or knowingly tolerate such public lying, cursing, and blaspheming of his son and of his Christians. For whatever we tolerate in the past unknowingly, and I myself was unaware of it, will be pardoned by God. But if we, now that we are informed, were to protect and shield such a house for the Jews, existing right before our very nose, in which they lie about, blaspheme, curse, vilify, and defame Christ and us, as was heard above, it would be the same as if we were doing all this and even worse ourselves as we very well 
No. Now, what is he referring to? Well, he's talking about the, the blood libel. Uh, there were all sorts of stories told, continue to be told today, uh, of what the Jews did in secret in their synagogues and how, uh, well, there are in the Talmud, for example, some pretty uh, clearly anti-Christian statements about Jesus and his parentage and so on and so forth. But the popular stories that were spread about in medieval culture and in the culture at this time concerning the activities of the Jews and their um, uh, secret blasphemies and ceremonies and, and so on and so forth were just wild. And between 1523 and 1543, Luther came to believe the blood libel um, uh, stories and the stories about um, children being sacrificed and, and, and all the rest of the stuff. He came to believe that these were true. And then note, in honor of our Lord and of Christendom. Christendom. Um, so it seems very clear that... Now, what's, what's really, really, really ironic at this point... Um, even Martin Bootser, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on Martin Bootser. Martin Bootser is a reformer of Strasbourg, and he was known as a very ironic, uh, calm, uh, almost ecumenical, trying to get everybody together type guy. Even Bootser in the late 1530s uh, wrote a book against, uh, I'm sorry, uh, was it 1541? 1530, I think 1539, 1544, I was uh, wrote a book against the Jews. Even Martin Bootser did. And what is really fascinating is that Luther's lifelong enemy, Johann Eck, from back at the Heidelberg disputa uh, disputation and uh, his opponent, at the, the, the debate in Leipzig, and the one that was trying to get the Pope to get him condemned and uh, he's just lifelong enemy of Martin Luther. Um, Eck puts out a book around this same time uh, called Refutation of a Jew Book, 1541. And to quote Stephen Rowan in 1985, it would be odious to review the whole of Eck's book. Suffice it to say that it represents the absolute nadir of anti-Jewish polemic in the early modern period. Uh, it was long. It was vile. Um, it believed every lie that has ever been told about the Jews and codified it. And two years later, Luther comes out with his own book, The Jews and Their Lies. So here you have two mortal enemies, and yet they are ironically at the end of their lives, united. And what holds them together? Sacralism, a belief in the state church. And so they see the Jews as a fundamental threat to a unified state church. If you believe in sacralism, then the idea is we can't allow places like a, uh, a synagogue to exist on Christian land because this is a Christian country. And therefore, we will receive the punishment due to 
any Christian land that would allow that to happen. Yeah. The parents say that this is uh, this is very very different though than the anti-Semitism that we see today because it's based not there wasn't like concept of race like in that period that this is an attack on people who uh, about Judaism. It's religious and national. It's yeah. Luther pretty clear in even his most hostile like out there book that a person of Jewish heritage can convert to Christianity and they're totally cool in his book, mm -hmm. which I mean would be quite different. Than yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, he even said in, in the Jews and their lies, you know, uh, we try to snatch some of them from the from the fires. He hadn't given up on the idea of the salvation of a Jewish person. Um, but um, there was a, a marked shift and hardening in his attitude, and uh, Eck, even, even much, much, much more so. It's just horrific. Um, now, there were people, uh, Andreas Osiander, Andreas Osiander, who will be, we'll see next week, was at the Marburg Colloquy. We'll talk about that from 1529. Um, but Andreas Osiander uh, was one of the early reformers at this time period who was thoroughly opposed to this attitude and taught that uh, as Christians, we should be seeking to uh, love and evangelize the Jews, uh, reason with them from the scriptures, uh, that their person should be protected, that the Bible says that we are to be doing these things. Uh, evidently, he read Romans chapter 9 and uh, uh, 10, 11, and, and went, hmm, mm, boasting against the branches, hmm, uh, okay. Um, and so there, there were some who were saying, no, 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 stop, time out. This is, this is totally inconsistent with what we're saying, but they were, they were unfortunately in the minority, even when you have someone like Martin Bootser writing against, uh, at, against the Jews at this time. And so, like I said, well, you know, last year there, was, there were numerous articles, uh, especially in October, why we can celebrate the Reformation but not necessarily celebrate um, Martin Luther. And almost all of this went back to uh, Luther and the Jews, Luther was in the vast mainstream of thought, both Roman Catholic and Lutheran, and Reformed at this point in time. We would be in a small minority, in our view, at that particular time in history. That's the reality. That's, that's simply what must be uh, recognized. That's what history does. It slaps us upside the face and uh, makes us realize that uh, things have not always been as they are now. Um, very similar situation to what's come up recently uh, in various contexts, the reality that George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards own slaves. Um, a lot of people are like, well, they need to be judged on the basis of what? Well, you've got to find out what did they know what was believed? Were they in rebellion against the church of their day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, and man, it's, it's tough to get people to hold their emotions in check long enough to actually even ask those questions. Say, could we, could we consider this? Uh, people don't think about applying the same standards to others that they would want to have applied to themselves by, by later generations. But there you go. There's the, uh, there's the issue with, uh, with Luther and the peasants' revolt. So 
we will pick up with the, uh, the Marburg colloquy uh, and pretty much finish off Luther uh, next week, Lord willing. Uh, finish off Luther. That didn't sound quite right, but uh, you know what I mean. Uh, we'll finish our, our looking at Luther. Uh, and so if you haven't watched the videos yet, you sort of missed that part, but you can still watch the radicals uh, before we get to the Anabaptists, and that will, that will help you with that uh, a, a good deal. Okay? All right, let's close the word of prayer. Once again, Father, we do thank you for the opportunity of looking back and learning. And Lord, we do pray that uh, as we see blind spots and errors in others, that we, you would give us the perspective to see the same in our own lives. Uh, Lord, may we not be uh, judgmental, but may we judge righteously, uh, even as we look at history. Be with us now as we go into worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.